scripture for today's teaching is found in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone was in distress, and everyone was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. This is the word of God to us. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Good morning. If you uh, don't know me, if we've not had a chance yet to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. And uh, man, it's so good to be back in the U.S. with you guys. I've missed, missed you guys so much. Uh, I, I've been in Africa uh, got back late last week, about Sunday night, and was doing some work with some pastors and some leaders in Ghana in a district called Wasa East. And man, I, I uh, just wanna say thank you for praying for me. Thank you for praying for my family. The work that God is doing over there is unbelievable. If I talk too much about it, I'll get emotional and I won't be able to preach, but it was powerful. I mean, we had um, one pastor at the end of the week stand up, a pastor stand up in tears and say, I've learned that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And if that tells you anything about the theological state of Ghana, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like, imagine if the Southern Baptist Convention took over part of Africa and made it way legalistic, and uh, they had like some form of religion but didn't know Jesus, that's Ghana. And we were able to do some really beautiful ministry with pastors and leaders, some men and women. So thank you so much for sending us. Thank you for praying for me. And I'm very happy to be back with American food. I've missed it very much. I wanna say also, if, if you're here and uh, you're hearing all this talk about church and this is maybe your first time to church in a while or maybe you've, uh, maybe you've never been, man, I, I get that that can be nerve-wracking. And if you're anything like me, maybe you, you carry some painful memories and experiences from the church. I have, I have story after story of how the church has hurt me and how the church has done things that are painful to me but I also have story after story of how the church has been the greatest gift and what God has used to give me a sense of his presence. And so I just wanna invite you into that. This is a safe place to be church hurt, uh, but I think, that, I think that this is a place where you can grow and experience the grace of God. So thank you for being with us. I'm excited to jump in. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray today as we open up to this story in 1 Samuel 21 through 23, God, I pray that whatever it is that needs to happen in our heart, that you would do it. So we invite you. We know that you don't need our permission to come and move, but we invite you. Would you come and would you move? And I, I wanna pray especially for the people in the room that are suffering. Maybe they've not even acknowledged this with you yet, but they're suffering. They're experiencing tragedy. They're experiencing loss. They're experiencing pain. I pray that today you would meet them with your grace. So come and move. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You and I know February 14th as Valentine's Day. It's the day where we eat a lot of candy and pass out cards and uh, pink heart-shaped candy to each other. And it's just kind of a, a day for cheesy expressions of love. Or some of you know it as Single Awareness Day. You know, whatever it is for you, that's Valentine's Day to us. Good or bad, take it or leave it. But for Theodore Roosevelt in 1884, February 14th, was one of the darkest days, if not the darkest day of his life. Theodore Roosevelt, little backstory, two days before, uh, his wife is very pregnant. He's living in New York City, but working in Albany. 
and he gets a telegraph saying, hey, your wife has had the baby. And so he's excited to come home and meet his daughter for the first time. But the telegraph also says, oh, and while she was in labor, while she was in delivery, she contracted a sickness and things are not looking good. So he rushes home to, to New York to be with his daughter, to meet her for the first time, to hold his wife. By the time he got there, she'd already slipped into a coma. While he's holding his wife, he gets news that his mom, who is actually downstairs in the same house, uh, earlier had contracted typhoid fever and things were not looking good with her. So he runs downstairs, he leaves his wife, runs downstairs, and as soon as he gets to her side, she dies. And then he goes back upstairs to be with his wife again, and as soon as he makes his way back up to his wife, she dies not long after that. Same day, his mom and his wife, who he dearly loved, and in his journal, he etched a very big black X and wrote these words on February 14th, the light has gone out of my life. This is the saddest day of Theodore Roosevelt's life. If you read through the story of David, where we are at in this story in chapter 21 through 23, you could take a big black X and put it over this part of the story because this is where David's story turns painful. This is where his story starts to take a tragic turn and everything seems to fall apart. This is a dark and painful day in David's life. Now, if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Warrior Poet. We're looking at this idea of uh, King David, the king of Israel, who... Uh, even though this is about 3,000 years ago, was one of the most notable people in history. There's more written about him in scripture than anyone else outside of Jesus. And his story up until this point, if you've been tracking with us, has been a story of up and to the right. I mean, his story truly is a from rags to riches story. He, he goes from complete obscurity to national fame almost overnight. We first meet David as a 15-year-old shepherd boy out in the fields. He's just a nobody. He's the youngest of several brothers. And yet the prophet Samuel shows up to his house and Samuel says, yeah, it's not these other brothers that are more king-like in appearance that God has chosen, but it's actually this young 15-year-old. And so he goes to David. He anoints him as the king of Israel. And his story from this point forward is nothing but incredible. The next vignette that we have of David, David is rushing into battle to fight this champion, Goliath, uh, kind of their arch enemy, the Philistines. And that story ends with David holding the head of Goliath and the people of Israel singing his praises. And then if you fast forward in the story, David meets a beautiful woman. Michael happens to be Saul's daughter, so the existing king's daughter. And she falls in love with him, he falls in love with her, and they get married and it's just nothing but success after this point. He then goes into battle after battle with the Philistines, and no matter what he does, everything he touches turns to gold. Every enemy he faces, he defeats. And a song, kind of the popular hit song of the day uh, in Israel went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. I mean, what an amazing story, like a meteoric rise to wealth and success and achievement, it seems as though nothing could go wrong. And then you get to chapter 21. And when you get to chapter 21, the story in David's life starts to fall apart. The wheels come off and everything that could go wrong goes wrong. 
It starts with his father-in-law, the king, King Saul, who is growing increasingly paranoid, who is so obsessed with his own kingdom that he sees David as a threat and he starts to actually throw spears at David. He tries to kill David. And then this gets worse and worse to where David no longer can stay in the palace and can no longer stay in the city of Jerusalem, but he has to leave his wife, he has to leave his best friend, and he runs into the wilderness as a fugitive, literally being chased night and day by the existing king. And this goes on for over a decade. David in the wilderness as a fugitive, running for his life. I mean, can you imagine the stress of every day, not knowing if you turn a cave or turn a corner here, if King Saul and his soldiers are gonna be there to kill you and to end your life. This was David's life for over 10 years. And we know this as David's pre-king days, but David didn't know that. David didn't know it as his pre-king days. For all he knew, this was just the new normal. This was what his life had gone to. And so just to get the full weight of this, I mean, I want you to try to put yourself in his shoes. I'm gonna read a few different texts. I'm gonna read 1 Samuel 22, verse one. Try to insert yourself into the story and feel what he must have felt. David says, departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, what the author is doing here is interesting. Uh, This idea of a cave is, we know, just a cave. It's a scary place that bears might be in, and so you really don't wanna go in one unless you're feeling adventurous. But for David and for this culture in the 10th century BC, caves represented the place of death because caves were often used as tombs. And so it's a little bit of a play on words. David is literally hiding out in a physical cave, but this cave in many ways is like David entering into the place of death. Life is being snuffed out of him, and here he is hiding out in the tombs. And then it says that when his father's house heard it, when his family heard that he was there, they're in danger too, so they go to find David, and it says that they go down to him. Now, it's actually not down geographically. Uh, The terrain goes up to where they are, to where David is hiding out. But the author's trying to tell us something by saying his family went down because this is the part of the story where David is declining. Things in his life are falling apart. He's declining and death is at his door. So his family had to go down to him. Now, fast forward, look at 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. This will be up on the screen. And David remained in the strongholds where? In the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Every day, Saul was hunting David, and he's hiding out in the wilderness. Now, fast forward to verse 24. Now, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul just in time. Hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. 
the strongholds of En Gedi. That's another way to talk about these caves, these places of hiding in the middle, in the middle of the wilderness. So, so here's my point. David is thrust into the wilderness. He's thrust into the place of death. He's declining in his life. This is a tragic, tragic turn of events. And I just wanna pause, and I just wanna ask the question, why? Why does this have to be the story? Like, why does God allow this to be the narrative? Why is it not that David, as a 15-year-old boy, is anointed as king, and then you turn the page, and he succeeds to the kingdom, and that's that, it's done? Why is the story that David is anointed as the king, and his life starts to have this upward meteoric rise, and about the time that everything is as good as it ever could be, the wheels fall off, and his life is thrust into pain and into suffering and into tragedy, and he's removed from the city, and he's brought into the wilderness. Why does this have to be the story? Why does God allow stuff like this? Why does God bring David out into the wilderness, into suffering, into descent, into decline? And the answer to that question is so important because the the answer to that question is, is the same answer to why God sometimes allows us to walk into the wilderness and why sometimes he actually leads us by the hand into the wilderness where he allows tragedy and suffering and heartache. The answer to this question about David's life is gonna help us grasp why God sometimes allows us to go through this too. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, David didn't start out in the wilderness and he didn't end up in the wilderness, but he did spend some highly significant years in the wilderness. And I love this. He says, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. So it's important to know what can take place there. Everybody at least everybody who's going to do anything with God, have any business with God, spends time in the wilderness. Why? Now listen, let me just say, I don't know what your wilderness might be. Could be different for different people. It might be different for me than it is for you. For some of you, maybe you're in a wilderness season right now, and that wilderness season looks like your marriage falling apart. Maybe you're in a wilderness season right now, and it looks like physical pain a bad doctor's report that you did not expect and it's changed the way that you interact. It's changed the way that you live. Maybe for you, like the, the season of, of a wilderness is losing somebody close to you that you love. Maybe it's a season of financial heartache where it feels like you can't make ends meet and debt is increasing, anxiety is rising. Listen, I don't know what your wilderness is. Maybe it's not physical at all. Maybe it's purely like on an emotional level and a spiritual level where you just don't even know how to tell those that are closest to you the, the level of depression that you have in your chest, the level of just lostness that you feel. And it feels like God's a million miles away and he doesn't want anything to do with you. And there's tragedy all around. Like, I don't know what your wilderness is, but here's what I do know. You are either inside of a wilderness season or listen, you are heading into a wilderness season. So this is very important. By the way, you're welcome for the good news that I just gave you. I'm pastor encouragement today. Hope you enjoy that. But the reality is this, you're either in a season of wilderness or you are headed into a season of the wilderness. What is God doing with you? Well, let me just make a few observations from this passage. Here's the the biggest thing I want you to see. 
is that the wilderness is a gift. It's a gift. And listen, here's the first thing about this gift. This is a gift that you don't choose. This is not a gift that you raise your hand and say, God, you know what I would like today? I would like to step into a season of suffering, please. And thank you very much. In Jesus' name, amen. Nobody prays that prayer. David did not have this on his agenda. David did not have this in his my best life now plan of events. Like this was not what he had hoped for. He thought he was just gonna ascend to the kingdom and he'd had nothing but victory. And yet in the middle of his success, he's brought low and he's brought into the place of the wilderness. This was not something that David wanted and it wasn't something that he chose. This was a painful thing that was thrust upon him. And listen, nobody, nobody wants this to happen, but it just does. It's a gift that you don't choose. That's the first thing that we need to grapple with about these wilderness seasons. Here's the second thing. This is a gift that strips you of everything else. The wilderness is something that strips you of everything else. And actually, as painful as that stripping is, it's some of the most beautiful work that God could ever do inside of you. Because what happens in the wilderness is you no longer have the chance to look at the stuff around you for help. You no longer have people that you can count on or you no longer have places or or possessions or stuff that you can lean into for help and and for hope. Literally, all of that is taken from you. It's crushed out of you. And in the wilderness, here's what's happening. You are now, for maybe the first time, you are forced to just deal with God or not, but you don't have any other option. Everything else is stripped, and you either deal with God or you don't. And this is what happens to David. Everything is taken from him. He loses his wife, he loses his best friend, he loses his possessions, he loses his positions of power and influence, he loses all the songs that were being sung about him, and he becomes a byword to other people in Israel, and now he's known as a fugitive who is on the run, and lies are being told about him. In this season of David's life, everything is stripped from David, and listen, the only thing he has left is just God, and that is the best thing that could ever happen to a person. And it's in this season of the wilderness that David pens some of the most beautiful poetry and sings some of the most beautiful songs about God. This isn't conjecture. This isn't religious language. This is David in the place of desperation. Let me just give you one example, Psalm 63, which is a psalm literally titled David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He says these words. He says, oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. You see, what we've done in Oklahoma culture to this song and religious Oklahoma culture is we've religiously romanticized this entire psalm. And we put it on plaques and we put it on coffee mugs. But listen, when David says these lines about 
as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's not spiritual hyperbole. That's David saying, I am in the desert. I don't know where water is. I don't know where anything is. And I'm weary and I'm just trying to survive. God, that's ultimately what I need from you. You are what I need even more than water. You are what I need. Your presence is what I need. And he says, I look to you. I don't look to anything else. I don't have anything else to look to. I behold you and your power and in your glory. If you are in the middle of the wilderness, it's a gift. It's a gift that you didn't choose, but it's a gift that's stripping you of every other hope, every other security, every other place that you would go to for comfort. And God is there and he's inviting you. Will you deal with me? Will you deal with me? This is the gift of the wilderness. In addition, number three, in the wilderness, refuge becomes a person and no longer a place. See, that word refuge, throughout the English language, the the etymology of that word, it literally means a physical geographical fortress that you would run into for safety and for security and for protection. It always has meant a physical place that you would go to to be protected from harm or from danger. But something happens in the Psalms. This word is obscured to the point that it's almost lost. And and that meaning of a physical geographical place is like thrown out completely. And now this word refuge in the Psalms only refers to a person. And it's the person of God. Listen to this Psalm in uh, chapter two. David says, blessed are all those who take refuge, not in a place, but in him, in God. He picks it up again in Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Picks it up again in Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Again in chapter 11 of the Psalms. In the Lord I take refuge. And on and on and on. This is used 37 times in the Psalms. And not one time does it refer to a cave or to a place or to a fortress. It refers to the presence and the person of God. David is learning something here that you can no longer trust in earthly physical things for safety and for security and for hope. Now your refuge has to become God, just God, God alone. This is a beautiful gift from the wilderness. So I just wanna invite you, if you're in the place of anxiety today, if you're in the place of stress today, if you're in the place of pain today, and so many of us are, the temptation for you and I is to run to alcohol and excess to numb the pain that we feel. It's to run to shopping on Amazon so that we can click, click, click our pain away. It's to run to a latte. It's it's to run to sexual uh, pursuits to try to just feel better about ourselves. It's to run to stuff or money or possessions or to have some sort of accolades or have some people think of us a certain way. And I'm just telling you, the gift of the wilderness is all that gets stripped away and you realize that none of that actually will do the job. Now only God will do. You need him to find your refuge. And that's a gift. You cannot learn that in the same way if you don't go into the wilderness. This is a gift from God. Number four, in the wilderness, transformation happens. Transformation happens in the wilderness. It's really fascinating if you read David's story. He actually enters into the wilderness as a warrior. 
It's like the biggest thing that we know about David is he's a warrior. He's slayed the giant. He's defeated all of his enemies. He's had military victories. So he steps into the wilderness as a warrior. But do you know how David exits the wilderness? He leaves the wilderness as a lover. Something transformative happened to him that God did in his season and years upon years of running from Saul, hiding in the wilderness. God was doing a deepening work inside of David's life, inside of David's heart. So he steps in as a warrior. He leaves as a lover. This is an incredible transformation and it only could have happened through the wilderness. I love the words of Gene Edwards in A Tale of Three Kings. By the way, if you've not read A Tale of Three Kings, I wanna invite you to confess your sins today and repent and find hope in Jesus. You should read that book today. Go buy that on Amazon. It's a book that I read every year. It only will take you about an hour. It's amazing. And in that book, which is about the life of David, Gene Edwards says this about David. He says, David had less now than when he was a shepherd. For now, he had no lyre, nor son, not even the company of sheep. The memories of the court had faded. David's greatest ambition now reached no higher than a shepherd's staff. Everything was being crushed out of him. He sang a great deal, and he matched each note with a tear. And then I love this line. He says, how strange is it not what suffering begets There in those caves, drowned in the sorrow of his song and in the song of his sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer and the greatest comforter of broken hearts this world shall ever know. How strange, is it not, what suffering begets? Have you ever noticed how you never choose suffering? And yet if you think back to the time in your your life where the presence of God was most real, where real change began to happen in your soul, where you encountered the love of God in fresh ways. It was never when things were going great, was it? It was always when you hit rock bottom, when things fell apart, when you looked around and you didn't have anything else to hope in. It was in the wilderness seasons when the presence and love of God become most real and God does a transformative work, so much so in the life of David that had he never gone through this, when you and I as followers of Jesus go through our tragedies and our sufferings, we would have nowhere to turn for help because the Psalms are the place that we go to again and again just to have somebody tell us that God is still good when it feels like the opposite is true. To have somebody tell us that we can still trust him when life falls apart because that's what David did. Something happened in him. He's transformed. He goes from warrior to lover through this suffering. And this is how God works. And I'm not belittling suffering. Like I hate that people in our church are hurting. I hate that suffering strikes I was on the phone yesterday with a single mom in our church who, if you knew her story, it would make you just weep. She lost her dad yesterday who was out running and got hit by a car tragically. She's burying her dad. She's already buried her mom. She's lost her husband. It's just a tragic story. She's gone through more stuff in her life than anybody should ever have to go go through. And she's one of the most radiant, beaming, godly people I know. Even on the phone while we were crying, she had hope in God. She trusted in God. And there's a deepening thing happening in her that cannot happen if you don't go through the wilderness. It's a transformation. So listen, if you're there right now, I don't know what God's doing, 
I don't know when it's gonna end, but here's what I know. I know that he's for you. I know that he loves you. I know that he's stripping you and it hurts right now, but he's doing it because he is turning you into something that cannot happen if you don't go through this. You can trust him. He is your refuge. You didn't choose this, but he has you by the hand. He has you by the hand. This is the gift of the wilderness. Last thing, and I'll be done. The story takes an interesting turn because David chooses to not go into the wilderness for himself. This was a choice that happened to him. He's thrust into the wilderness. But something really bizarre happens in chapter 22. In the wilderness, the desperate, those who are in debt, and the discontented find a new identity. The desperate, in debt, and discontented find a new identity. So look at 1 Samuel 22, verse one again. Look at this. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And look at this, verse two. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in in soul, gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Those who are in distress, in debt, bitter in soul, start to be drawn to the wilderness to meet with David. I love the way the CSB, another translation, translates verse two. It says, every man who is desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. What a crazy group of people to be around right? People are like, yeah, I just am in a lot of debt, and so this city life is not working, and I've heard about this guy named David. I'm gonna just take my debt, and I'm gonna run out to David, spend some time with him. David's like, yeah, it's good to meet you. What's your story? I'm like, yeah, I'm in severe debt, and I had to escape here. He's like, well, join, join in on the cave. Glad you're here. Next guy shows up. What brought you here? Oh, I'm just bitter in soul. I've lost all hope of living I want to die, so I thought I'd come spend time with you. You know, you seem like a good friend. Another guy shows up. What brought you here? I'm just in distress. I don't know how to put it. I'm just in distress, right? Everything's falling apart. So here's what you have. You have like the most weird hodgepodge group of of people gathering around David. It's like we don't even know how they heard about this, but David, who did not choose the wilderness as there against his own Uh, desire was thrust there by God. You've got all of the most broken people, the most empty people, the most despicable people who have lost hope in the king. They've lost hope in the government. They've lost hope in society. They've lost hope in whatever. They're in debt. They're distraught. They're bitter. They make their way to David. And you know what's fascinating about this? Not only does David joyfully receive them and become their leader, but over time, they experience their own transformation and they get an entire new identity. And do you know who many of these men are later referred to in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel? David's mighty men of valor. What? What's your story? Well, I was in severe debt and I met David. And something happened in my relationship to David. I became a mighty man of valor. What's your story? Oh, I was, I was near suicide. Bitter in soul, lost hope in the government, lost hope in society. And I met David and I became a mighty man of valor. 
what in the world is happening here? Does that sound familiar to you? Because later, several hundred years later, there's gonna be another, not David, but the son of David, Jesus, and the weirdest people are gonna gather around him. Prostitutes, those who are in spiritual debt and can't get out, the weak and the poor and the sick and the paralyzed and tax collectors and those that are shunned by society, people that no one else wants anything to do with, they are going to find their way to Jesus. And not only is Jesus gonna receive them, but Jesus is gonna give them an entirely new identity. Not through a creed or some code of valor that they take, but through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and their relationship to Jesus, it's gonna change them from the inside out. This is a story ultimately about the gospel where we go out and we bring our debt, we bring our brokenness, we bring our distress, we bring our wilderness pains, we bring our emptiness, we bring it to Jesus. He does something to us. He receives us, he loves us, he transforms us, and he gives us a new identity. You might have come to Jesus as a slave to sin, but do you know how you leave Jesus? as a son or a daughter. You might have come to Jesus fully expecting to receive the wrath of God, but do you know know how you leave? You leave holding bundles and bundles of grace, love, and mercy that you don't even know what to do with. You might come to Jesus empty. You've tried it all, you've done it all, you're empty. You leave Jesus being filled. This is what Jesus does. By the way, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering what Christianity is all about, man, I don't know how else to put it to you. Christianity is just a gathering together of the outcasts. It's not like we thought we were really good and we gather every Sunday to like clap and sing about how great we are and like, man, aren't you glad you kept the rules all week like I did too? Yeah, I'm really glad that you're good and we're all moral and we're okay. That's not Christianity and it's not what Jesus came to give us. You know why we're here? We're here because we were the distressed. We were the in debt. We were the bitter in soul. We tried it all and it left us empty. And yet somehow by the grace of God, we heard the call of Jesus. He received us in our emptiness. He gathered together the outcast. He loved us and he changed us. The wilderness that we've walked through and the wilderness that sometimes we have to go back into, Jesus loved us and he gave us a new identity. I love these words of Philip Yancey. He says, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. Much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world. The poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and the thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, the prodigal, not the responsible son, the good Samaritan, not the good Jew, Lazarus, not the rich man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, as Charles Spurgeon expressed it, his glory was that he laid aside his glory, and the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. 
So I just wanna invite you, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, do you feel like an outcast? You're invited. You're invited. You can give your life to Jesus today and I promise you, I promise you, he will receive you, he will love you, and he will change you. You're invited to him today. I wanna invite you to stand with me if you would. you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you're going through a season that you might describe as wilderness, tragedy, you feel like you're being crushed, feels like God has brought you to the place of death. I don't know what your story is, but what I do know is this, the body of Jesus was broken for you. Did you know that Jesus was called the man of sorrows? that he was acquainted with grief? Do you know what it, he, he knows what it feels like, not because he's God, but because he experienced rejection, betrayal, abandonment, misunderstanding by his family, his own disciples leaving him. He experienced physical trauma and pain. He was, his face was spit into, he was slapped crown of thorns was put on his head. His body was torn and his blood was shed. Jesus knows what it's like. And today, if you're in the wilderness, God is not aloof and he's not distant and he's not unwilling to meet with you. He's the man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he loves to bind up the brokenhearted. If you're in the wilderness today, I just wanna invite you as a follower of Jesus to grab the bread and grab the wine. This is sustenance for your soul. This is the love of God. This is comfort in your affliction. Maybe you need to do this by yourself and you just need to weep and ask God to touch you and be present with you. Maybe you need to do this with friends. Maybe you don't even have the words to pray. So you need to go to somebody and say, I can't even pray. Will you pray for me as we receive this together? I will invite you to do that. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you feel desperate, if you feel in debt, if you feel discontent with all that the world has offered you, with the American dream, and it feels like a sham, it feels like a lie, it's because it is, and what you really need is Jesus. He's inviting you as you are today, and we wanna give you a chance to become a follower of Jesus. So we're gonna have men and women down front ready to receive you, ready to pray with you, ready to talk with you. I wanna invite you, if you feel the Lord drawing your heart today, if you feel Jesus giving you the chance to step out of religion and into real understanding of Jesus and who he is, we'd love to talk with you. Come up, share your story, we'll pray for you. If you don't feel comfortable coming up here, we're gonna have prayers on the screen that you can pray, and I think these will be really helpful for you as you wrestle with the claims of Christianity. So followers of Jesus, you're invited now. Come grab the bread, grab the wine. Let's commune with the one who knows what suffering feels like.